Good morning, I'm Robin, and uh, the first reading today is from Exodus chapter 16, verses 9 to 15. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. And from John chapter 6, verses 35 to 59. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those who has given, he has given to me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, now, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh, his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, 
and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. These uh, astounding words of Jesus, these confronting words of Jesus, are the key sentence, is the key sentence for this morning's sermon. Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That's John 6.53. This Lent we're doing a series of sermons on the theme, Verbs of Discipleship. That is based on passages in John. We're looking at the verbs to bring out the riches of what it is to be disciple of Jesus. Or rather, put it the better way, the riches of Jesus, whose disciples we seek to be. Now, I'm not complaining, but you know that Justin sets out the topics and the preachers, right? And last week, he got to open the series with the verb to drink, as the verb of discipleship, speaking that marvellous passage of Jesus' wonderful words about giving living water in John 4. We also have those wonderful refreshing pictures of water. Indeed, drinking water is an attractive thing. That was last week. And this week, what have I been given? Eating flesh and drinking blood. I'm not complaining, I'm just saying. But there'll be no slides today. (laughs) However strange and confronting Jesus' words are, and they are, the first thing we can say is he really meant it. He really meant it because the moment he was pushed back upon, He just doubled down. Following his words of our text, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He made four more statements there in chapter, John chapter 6, from verse 54 through 57. One, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise them up on the last day. Two, for my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink. Three, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, remains in me and I in them. For just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, the one who feeds on me will live because of me. We can also say that these words of Jesus were incredibly divisive. In chapter 6 of John, verse 66, which is after our set passage, we read, quote, And after this, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Many left him, his disciples. Though not the twelve, 
the chosen inner core, although even one of those, as Jesus said, was a devil. Yes, for many, this verb of discipleship was a complete turn-off. I want to start by telling how we get to the text before we look at what it might mean. How do we get here? Well, these words of Jesus come at the climax of a debate or dialogue trying to make sense of a miraculous event that had occurred the day before. Something astounding, something that seems impossible. What happened was this. Jesus and his disciples crossed the Sea of Galilee by boat to the other side and landed in an isolated place, but a large crowd had gone around the edge and caught up with them. And there, somehow, Jesus had been able to take just five barley loaves and two fish that some boy had with him and feed about 5,000 men as much as they wanted and have 12 basketfuls left over. Don't ask me how it happened. It is beyond all the laws of science as we know them, though not apparently beyond the power of God. Now, I was reading this week a book about, of all things, American history, in which this sentence occurred, or two sentences. Quote, but the most important question about a miracle isn't whether it happened, but what it meant. For without meaning, a miracle is just, he says, a convenient accident. That's understating it. But without, without meaning, a miracle is just a thing that happened. And that's true here. The great issue is, what does this miraculous feeding mean? Now, it's important for us to know that this crowd who had witnessed this miraculous feeding and were then in the synagogue arguing with Jesus were no ordinary people. They were Jews who, with their fellow Israelites, shared two basic and quite astounding beliefs. The first, that there is one God who made the entire universe, and two, this God has made a covenant or pact with them, with Israel. And because the one true God made a compact with them, Israel's current situation in Jesus' time, that is, oppressed by pagan nations, corrupted by its leadership, suffering people under the weight of its own sin, that situation they knew could not be allowed by God to continue. And they were convinced that God would be faithful to his promises, that he would restore and redeem his people. He would destroy evil in the world. As he had done in the earlier days at the Exodus when he had displayed his great power, overthrowing the Egyptians and bringing the children of Israel out of slavery, only more so. And as we heard in the first of our two readings, it was in that first redemption of Israel, in the time of Moses, that the Lord had fed his people in the wilderness with the miraculous provision of bread. They called it, by the way, manna from Hebrew, what is it? Not a good name for bread. What is it? That's his name, manna. Now, there was an expectation, it seems, in Jesus' day, we believe, that, that that would happen again in some way, that there'd be another great moment, another great redeemer. You see in the quotes, a quote from a rabbinic writing a little later, a couple of centuries later, which scholars think reflects first century Jewish attitudes. As the first redeemer was, so shall the latter redeemer be. As the former Redeemer caused manna to ascend, as it stated, Behold, I cause to rain bread from heaven for you. And when the crowd saw what Jesus had realized what Jesus had done with this feeding, they went wild. 
Surely, they said, this is the prophet who's to come into the world. And in fact, Jesus realized they were coming to try and force him to become their leader as king. That is, to get him to lead them in a revolt against the Romans who ruled over Israel, like Moses had against Egypt. But he got quickly away. It's in John 6, you can read it later. It was a very dangerous moment in Jesus' ministry that could have led to a violent and ultimately futile rebellion that would have got them all killed. Only later did they catch up with Jesus in the relative calm of the synagogue in Capernaum back on the other side. And that's when the dialogue about what that all meant starts taking place. And I, there are at least three stage, three steps. The first is the step where they move from they're talking about ordinary bread, but Jesus talks about another kind of bread, a kind of bread that actually brings not just life, but eternal life. It began when they asked him how he got there. There was a difficulty, strange, he got there a strange way. And Jesus said, look, truly I tell you, this is verse 26 if you're following it on a Bible, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I, I performed, because you ate the loaves and had your fill. That is, you don't understand what you're watching. You don't get the meaning. It's not really about the bread you ate, he said. And then he goes on. Do not work for the food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has set his seal of approval. Now those, they, those guys, I guess as we know, about working for your bread, your daily bread. And Jesus says, there's a food that spoils, and by implication those who eat it will spoil too. But there's another, not, that's not the one, not the one, said Jesus. Work for the food, for the bread, that, that endures to eternal life. And that food is given by the Son of Man, upon whom God the Father has set his approval. Jesus, Jesus strangely spoke of himself often in this third person way. The man, the Son of Man, speaking of himself. Work for that, he said. And when they ask, how? That is, what must we do to do the works of God? Jesus' reply was emphatic. Quote, the work of God is this. Believe in the one whom he sent. That's an important moment for them and may I say for us as well. The work of God, not the works of God which they ask about, the work of God is trust. That's the key. That you believe in the one whom he sent. They then push back by saying, what sign do you do that we may see it and believe you? What, do you? what will you do? That is, they get Jesus' point but don't really think he's the one. Because they know who he is. He's this bloke from Nazareth, right? So they ask what sign he does, forgetting what happened to that previous day. But they imply not much. And they quote to him, our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness as it is written he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus says back to them, it's not Moses, but my father who gives the true bread from heaven. It's not something about in the past with Moses. No, it's now. Gives my father. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. God has a life-giving bread for all the world. That's the first movement from 
discussing about literal bread to this surprising announcement about this life-giving, eternal life-giving bread. Second, Jesus shifts the debate. They ask, give us this bread always. <laughs> Fair enough. Jesus' reply is, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. It's now got personal. It's the whole point. This is the bread of God that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He is. He's not so much Moses now as a manna. And the miracle of feeding with the literal bread echoes the promise of bread from heaven that gives eternal life. And Jesus is himself that bread. That's the meaning of the miracle. And Jesus sums up that claim in verses 48, 51. Quote, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, and yet they died. Here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. So we've moved another step. We've moved from bread, literal bread, to bread that gives life to the world. Then two, bread that gives life to the world. So Jesus is the bread. There's one more movement. It comes when Jesus crosses the line in verse, the middle of verse 51. Quote, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread may live forever. And then he adds, this bread is my flesh which I give for the life of the world. It's gone from there is a bread, I am that bread, the bread is my flesh which not unnaturally causes his hearers to argue among themselves the obvious question, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus doesn't explain or make it easy for them. He just doubles down. His answer is the text we began with this morning. Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That's his answer to the question. I keep saying, don't blame me, I didn't write this stuff, okay. <laughs> it's not, not easy, is it? You're so, so I guess we, that's how we got there. That's how the debate gets to this climax. I guess it's now time to ask the question, can we work out what he meant? Because although Jesus doubles down on this language, the more his hearers take him literally, the more Jesus piles on the pressure. So they end up increasingly both confused and I assume disgusted. But as we reflect upon it, we can see Jesus is not actually speaking literally. He's speaking hyperbolically, hyperbole, extremely, poetically. What can he mean? He's speaking about his death. When Jesus says, this bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world, he's speaking of him giving himself to death for the life of the world. And there are two steps. I think the meaning of flesh and blood here is a way of describing his sacrificial death laid down for them. Flesh and blood being, as it were, what you separate in sacrifice. That's why it says in our text, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of God and drink his blood, you have no life in you. It is his death which will be the source of life. What about eating and drinking? Well, if you look at the parallels in the text, you realise that Jesus moves saying the same thing in different language, which gives us a clue to what he means. He 
He starts in verse 35, which is before our text. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Come, believe, right? Then in verse 47, truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. And then in verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I'll raise him the last day. Comes to me, believes in me, believes, eats my flesh, drinks my blood. The parallel make leads us to believe that these are all different ways of describing the one reality. The one embracing of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one trusting in him, the one coming to him. And the effects of that, as he says in verse 56, 58 is, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the Father, living Father, sent me, and I live because of the Father, whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, where your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Himself, in death, in particular. Which leads to another point. You say, hang on, I've heard that language somewhere else in the New Testament, from Jesus' lips. That's right. We can't help but be reminded of the other time he spoke like this at the Last Supper. When he said of the bread he was passing around at the Passover, this is my body and of the cup after the meal, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And that's the same language we use today in the Holy Communion. So it raises the question, when Jesus says, eat my body, drink my blood here, unless you do that you will not live is he speaking about the Holy Communion now he's not speaking about the Holy Communion but the Holy Communion is about what Jesus is speaking about say that again I wrote that down by the way in case that's too complicated it's in the notes <laughs> he's not speaking about the Holy Communion but the Holy Communion is about what Jesus is speaking about that is the Holy Communion is about what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 6, amongst other things. Because in, in the Holy Communion, we, we've, we've summarized the meal now down to a bare slip of a meal. But we literally eat bread and wine. We enact by that act. We make an act. We are feeding on Christ's body and blood by faith. And that's the way in which the Anglican service takes it. The order of service which has authority in our church, the, the sta oh, standard of worship and doctrine, includes the Book of Common Prayer way back uh, from the 17th century. We still use it here at the earlier service, as a matter of fact. And in that, there's a key prayer. And the more modern services have various versions of this. I'm not sure what's happened today, but something will happen down the same line. But in the BCP, it says like this. This, this is the key prayer. Ready? Hear us, O merciful Father, we most humbly beseech thee. And grant that we... And then there's a series of things like almost in brackets. Grant that we, receiving these thy creatures of bread and wine, according to thy Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ's holy institution, in remembrance of his death and passion, may be partakers of his body and blood. Take the bit of the middle out. The key prayer is, grant that we may be partakers of his body and blood as we eat and drink this bread and wine. That's the prayer. It's even more strong in it some of the other prayers we actually talk about grant us so to eat the flesh of thy dear son and drink his blood I don't know what a stranger would think Anglicans are supposed to be boring this is weird this is weird but we didn't make it up right 
The Holy Communion is about what Jesus is about in John chapter 6. Though I need to add two caveats. Receiving the sacrament and eating Christ's flesh and drinking his blood are distinct but related realities. They're distinct but related realities. Archbishop Thomas Cramner was the, the man who led the revolution in the 16th century, the very first, which really stays, his revolution remains to this day. And in a debate in the House of Commons in 1548, yes, they discussed interesting things in Parliament back then, he made this statement. I quote, it's in the quotes, by the way, in old-fashioned English. They be two things to eat the sacrament and eat the body of Christ. Eating the body of Christ is to dwell in Christ. And this may be though a man never tastes the sacrament. They are distinct. I also read that Cramner taught that when used properly, God was at work in the sacraments. They were not mere tokens. Many accuse him of saying this. Those who accuse him, he was very critical. In his lengthy book, A Defense of the True and Catholic Doctrine of the Sacrament from 1550, again, this quotes in the, uh, in the notes in the quotes, he wrote the bread and wine, and I quote, they be no vain or bare tokens, as you would persuade. For a bare token is that which betokeneth only and giveth nothing, as a painted fire which giveth neither light nor heat. But in the due ministration of the sacraments, God is present, working with his word and sacraments. End of quote. What Cramner is saying is, where God is present, where the word is present, where the Holy Spirit is present, as his people gather, the Holy Communion is not like a painted fire that gives neither light nor heat, a mere token. But what it betokeneth, to quote him, it then you, you receive in that process. You truly feed on him in your heart by faith. Which really brings us to what is really the question that must be in your mind when I started, other than what's he talking about, which is the question, why on earth did Jesus talk like this? Why this extreme, difficult, easy to misunderstand language? Frankly, misleading. Drink my blood, eat my flesh. You may find it strange that Jesus didn't Frankly, explain it to them. I'm speaking in symbols, he should have said. I'm using metaphors. That would have helped a lot. But no, he just doubles down. In fact, the more people complain, the stronger he pushes down on the, the language. He seems to deliberately open the door to misunderstanding. Why could this be? Why is he speaking like this? And I've got a few hot prot friends who are rather disappointed with Jesus at this point. Well, I'm not here to defend Jesus, who on any terms spoke in the most unsettling and outrageous ways. But I think this is his way of putting this issue right in our faces. Because through such words as, eat my flesh, drink my blood, not just come to me or believe in me, but that as well, we are confronted with the stark reality of him who gave his life for us, a real death of a real flesh and blood, real human, who is the eternal son of God. The reality is brought straight to us in a powerful and unmistakable way. 
by speaking so memorably, and may I even say so grossly in a way, Jesus is forcing his disciples to engage with him as reality. This verb of discipleship, to eat, says no to anything less. See, just sounding believe, you should believe, can sometimes sound like have an opinion about Jesus. Now, that's not what it means, but it can sound like that. Have a point of view. Oh, yeah, I've got a point of view. Eat my flesh, drink my blood, speaks of a deep engagement with the real Jesus Christ, the crucified Saviour. You see the point? So then, what is it? What is I am the bread of life about? An idea? You don't get eternal life by an idea. A religious practice? You don't get eternal life by a religious practice. A personal relationship with Jesus? Yes, but not simply a, a spiritual feeling or Jesus, my invisible friend. The real Jesus, the flesh and blood Jesus, who laid down his life, Jesus. Not the Jesus without the cross. Not the Jesus we can do other than fully embrace. That is our life. That is the true food. Very truly, I tell you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you.